Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin, would you say sin with me? Sin. Therefore, sorry, can you say therefore too? Two really important words. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments, weapons, for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments, weapons, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under, everybody say it with me, grace. Let's pray. Father, we come to this text today, and I come with a trembling amount of humility, having known for many, many years the wickedness in my heart and the struggle against sin that I go through and the power that exists in Christ. And we come today knowing that no ounce of morality will help us achieve this. It's only by your spirit that we can have victory. And I ask today, God, for the victory. I ask today, God, for us to, who are stuck in our cycles of sin to be unstuck by your spirit. May your word rule over us right, right now. Strengthen my voice, O oh Lord that the words that I say might be as if we hear words from you. You can do these things. To name you pray. Amen. For the first um, five chapters of Romans, Paul has done a tremendous amount of teaching, just an, an inordinate amount of explaining, 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 teaching, 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 teaching. He's taught about sin and wrath and the fact that all of humanity is destined to death because of our sin. In chapter 3, he talks about God's grace to us in Christ, that apart from the law now, righteousness has been known that is in Christ Jesus, and that he has satisfied uh, the penalty of our sin. Chapter 5, we have peace with God because of Christ. We are justified by faith. We, uh, just a ton of teaching. And I've heard it mumbled in the, you know, homes here in our neighborhood of, of small groups meeting saying, well, I, I wish it wasn't just like lecture. I wish that Paul would actually like help us know what we should do. Like, what do I do with all this stuff that he's been teaching me? And if that's you today and you're like, man, I don't, I don't need more categories. I need some help. Um, I've got good news for you because after five and a half chapters of just teaching, Paul is going to get to a therefore do this. And we are people who crave expert advice. We are. You take your car to a mechanic when it's got that check engine light on because you're like, I don't know what's going on with it. It's making that noise. And you, uh, you take your money to a financial advisor because you don't really know how the stock market works. I don't know who you're fooling. And you, you, uh, you, you take your things to experts, and you will find no better expert for your soul than the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and by God's word convinces us of righteousness. And Paul in Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 14 is going to say to us, friends, do this. Don't do this. 
And that's good news for us because we need God's spirit to help us walk through this world. Pastor Steve has put a header over this section of Romans from chapter 6 through chapter 7. We're going to probably come back to this header many times. It's a quote from John Owen, who was a 1600s reformer. And if you're celebrating Reformation Day this Wednesday, I I think you should go as this guy. You can look him up online. He's kind of creepy. But he said this. He said this. Oh, thank you. These are thrill lozenges. Colin, I appreciate it. John Owen said this, be killing sin. Could you say that with me? Be killing sin. That's the title of our message today across all four campuses. Be killing sin. Why? Or sin will be killing you. The imagery is that of a dragon that is out to get you. And unless you kill the egg before it hatches, it will rise up to devour you. Um, The old English, John Owen is quoted by saying, uh, brothers, Mortify thy flesh, or thy flesh shall mortify you. So we want to come today under Paul's instruction, the words of John Owen ringing in our minds, be killing sin, submissive to what the Spirit would say to us on this topic. So that's where I want to jump in. Be killing sin. Paul says it this way. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And that's, I had you repeat it when I read it for the first time because the word therefore is incredibly important. It connects what Paul is saying logically to what he's previously argued. And if this is your first time here at Bethel Church, I'm glad that you're here. I'm going to break down a little bit of what he previously argued in a moment. Because um, last week, Pastor Steve, he walked us through Paul's argument in Romans 6, 5 through 11, that we were dead to sin, now we're alive to God. And the resounding feedback that I got from last week's message was simply this. I am a zombie. That's like the result, every, like, you know, nine out of ten people that I talked to last week, they were like, man, I so appreciate that message because I'm a zombie. I realize I'm a zombie. What, what Pastor Steve kind of broke out for us was that there's people who are living their life dead to God and alive to sin. That's what Paul classifies as the non-believer, the non-Christian. The, the aim for the Christian is to Understand that you are dead to sin and alive to God. And Paul, knowing that, that's the state of Christians, puts that before us as our goal. Last week, Pastor Steve busted out a third category in the spirit of, I guess, Halloween, maybe. He said, there's a third category called a zombie, where you're alive to sin and alive to God, paradoxically. So many of us feel that we're there. Maybe you left a little discouraged last week because you felt convicted of living as if you haven't died to sin the way Christ died to sin. I'm here with some good news today because Paul tells us there's a way for us to kill sin. It's because of Jesus' death that he died and his life that we live, that we can die to sin and we can live to God Period, it's because of Christ. Paul's summary statement in verse 11 is so huge. He says this, notice this, verse 11, one verse prior. He says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul in Romans 6 is giving us a couple of words that he uses from, from, from uh, really verse 3 all the way on to now to help us understand where it is in the, in, the, in the life of a Christian that the war on sin is waged. If I read to you, you can look at it in your own copies, but Romans chapter 6 verse 3 
Uh, he says, so what then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he says, do you not know? If you fast forward a couple of verses to Romans 6, 6, he says, but we know that we have died to sin, that our old self was crucified with Christ. And then verse 11, he says, so then you must consider. Do you not know? And then he says, no, we know. And then he says, so therefore consider. You're like, Dan, why are you parsing these words out? Well, it's very simply, we have a thinking problem. The battle for our souls is often waged in our minds. The enemy comes in and twists our thinking. The battle over our bodies begins ultimately how we think about life, our purpose, our history, God's plan, the schemes of sin. Maybe how little we think of those things. But ultimately, the big question is how do we think about the reality of the resurrection? How do we think about the reality that I'm dead to sin and alive to God? And here's the big idea. Since I'm alive to God and dead to sin, number one, my thoughts can be transformed. And that is super good news for us today, that our thoughts can be transformed. And Paul tells us to win the war on sin, we must have it resolved in our minds that because Christ has died to sin and is alive to God, because we're united with him, we have died to sin and we are alive to God. Friends, you cannot be killing sin unless you have first recognized that faith in Christ's death and his resurrection is more than just something that's going to get you to church on Sunday. To believe and to have it resolved in your mind that you are united with Christ in his death and in his life, it changes how we think about everything. And that's why we as a church, we don't preach cute sermons. You notice that? There are pastors that would preach cute sermons still. They get their props out here and they're rhyming things and they'll entertain you. And there maybe is a place for that. But we want you to think differently now that you know Christ. To have your minds renewed. We're going to get there in Romans chapter 12. But how you approach the gospel in your thinking, it changes the way you approach conflict. It changes the way you approach relationships. It changes how you approach your career. It changes how you approach cancer. It changes how you approach your children. It changes how you approach everything. Because I know Jesus died to sin and is alive to God. My thoughts about myself can be transformed. I can consider myself to be dead to sin and alive to God. And friends, here's the lie that I think so many of us bought into right here in this place last week. And Pastor Steve is... We stream him in sometimes, and he's preaching, and we're watching the screens, and he's talking about the, 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 the non-Christian is dead to God and alive to sin. And he's talking about the Christian, saying, you know, the Christian is dead to sin but alive to God. And then all of us are like, I don't know that I want to be either, like, I want to be a Christian. I want to be dead to sin, but I know that's not my reality. And so he drops in the zombie that you're alive to sin and you're alive to God, and you're like, oh, that's me. And I think the that moment last week, the enemy started whispering into some of our ears this thing. You're right. You are alive to sin and you're alive to God. And if you think you can never be dead to sin and alive to God, you're wrong. The enemy goes to work on these truths in our heart. And I can imagine here that lie of you will always be a zombie until you die. 
You have no hope. You cannot do it. You're incapable of change. You've tried too hard. Just accept Jesus' grace but deny his victory because sin is too strong in your life. Aren't you frustrated of trying? Just give up. Friends, (laughs) you need to hear me say this. That is a lie. Sin, sin has been crucified. Sin has been killed. Sin has been destroyed. It is no longer our old master because we're dead to sin. Someone might ask the question, well, if I've died to sin, then why do I have to fight sin? And the answer is so simple but so profound. Though you have died to sin, sin has not died to you. I could drop in here illustrations of wars that were fought when uh, the soldiers didn't know that peace had already been negotiated. I guess the War of 1812 was like this, that back in the day they used to send word back and forth across the ocean by ships. And um, that war all was waged because the the, the, the sailors didn't know, they just didn't know that peace was available. And you've heard those stories about Japanese fighters in World War II who decades later still came out guns blazing because they thought the war was still raging. And that is sin. Sin has been defeated, but it doesn't know that it's been defeated. There is a day ahead of us as Christians that we are awaiting the absolute abolition of sin in this world where God will abolish it. He will just, just do away with it. But until then, we live in this time between the time where we're dead to sin but still still coming at us like a, like a bad boyfriend that we broke up with. Sin hits up your phone at night. It's like, hey, what, what you doing? And sin is like a, a landlord that you don't live in their place anymore but still comes around asking you for money. And you want to be like, dude, lay off because I don't live there anymore. But all of a sudden, you, you've been, here's how sin works. You've been dominated by it, so you feel fear towards it, and you want to give in to it. I can illustrate this for you. One pastor um, Pastor Stuart Briscoe, he's a wonderful guy. Him and his wife Jill have a wonderful Bible teaching ministry. And um, he, uh, he tells his story. He was going to Marine boot camp. And um, I don't have a story like this because I was never a Marine. I know you can't tell that from my physique. <laughs> but I just want to clear that up lest you think this was me. Um, I, I'm so proud to be in a church where we've had so many people who have served in the armed services, and I think you're the people that make America great, by the way. But um, this wasn't my story. This is Stu Briscoe's story. He went to go be in the Marines, and he showed up the first day, and he was uh, assigned to a taskmaster of a drill sergeant. The guy was the worst of the worst. He was so picky, so up on everybody's business that if you had, like, your uniform out of position or, like, even a slightly cocked collar or whatever, they would, they would put you through hell. And he was so afraid of this guy. Everybody, you know, drill sergeants would go around and, and guys would stiffen up and straighten up and whatnot. But when this guy walked the barracks, everybody would drop whatever they were doing. They would hush up because he was so strict. Well, the day came for Stu Briscoe to get his papers to be released from the military. And he had served his time. It was now time for him to go home. And he went to the office or whatever it was that gave him the papers. And he held in his hand his release papers that said, you have fulfilled your duty to your country. You are now able to go back to civilian life. And Briscoe, um, for years of not being able to slouch or whistle while he was walking, decided that what he was going to do, what he was going to do was um, 
holds his papers in one hand and just kind of strut his way out the door. Just like, you guys don't rule me anymore. And, and he walked a little bit with a swagger. He, he describes the fact that he whistled while he walked, something that would have gotten him uh, in tremendous amounts of trouble underneath his old taskmaster. And he thought to himself, man, this is amazing. What if he could see me now? And around the corner <laughs> came his drill sergeant. And with papers in one hand that proclaimed his freedom, Briscoe said, my mind was so accustomed to the domineering reign of this man over my life that my instinct was to salute, stand at attention, and raise my right arm to uh, salute him. And he says, I got halfway there until I remembered the papers that were in my hand. And my thinking had to be transformed because my instincts were to honor this person in front of me. And halfway through it, I realized, no, you are dead to me. You aren't my master. You have no power over me. Actually, watch this. And he went on to his way on out the door. And so it is with sin. Sin is a taskmaster that has its thumb upon our lives that constantly has pressured and bullied and seduced us down roads that we ought not go in our minds. And sin has brought us under its reign. And here's what Paul is saying. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? Because sin has no dominion over you. You're no longer under law. You're under grace. You don't have to fear the old master. That's what it looks like to be dead to your old master and to be alive to your new master. To consider yourself alive to God and dead to sin. And friends, you don't have, you, you have God's word that you could hold in your hands as papers of forgiveness. But, but, but more than that, you have the resurrection of Jesus Christ that reminds us. That you hold by faith in your hands that reminds you to consider yourself dead to your old ways and alive to God. Because of that, our thoughts can be transformed, so be killing sin. Look at where this takes us in verse 12. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin. Your members is like the parts of your body, all of it. As instruments, I know your Bible says instruments, but the word is actually weapons. I don't know why we don't translate it weapons. It's weapons for unrighteousness. There is a war picture that Paul has in mind here for us to think about sin with. The picture here is one of total dominance. He says, I don't know if you think it's strange, he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And you're like, well, what does my body have to do with it? Well, if you've ever lived a day in your life outside of your body, then you can make that claim. But every one of us lives embodied. We are psychosomatic unities. We are mind-body combinations that live in this world. And when sin reigns in your body, it makes you obey the passions of your body. So that your body desires sinful desires. It's so slippery. This is how sinister sin actually is, is that we think we're satisfying our own desires, but sometimes the most effective way to get someone else to do your bidding or to get your way accomplished through other people is to make them think that they have the idea first. Like if you're in a boardroom and you want to get your boss to think about something your way, you kind of just plant the seed and you say, like, I know you thought that we should do this. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I did think that. You're right. And you're like, ha I win. <laughs> you inceptioned them. And that's the way sin works with us. 
Paul says, therefore, you're dead to your desires being controlled by sin. You don't have to obey sin. So this is really good news. Since I'm alive to God and dead to sin, number two, my, my desires, they can be denied. Everybody say, my desires can be denied. You can say no. Sin's playbook is as predictable as a formula, as a reality TV show is. My wife and I, we watch these, like, cooking shows or whatnot on TV, and I always know, like, who's going home on Chopped. You just know. Like, that person's talking too much right now. They're definitely getting, ca- they're getting cut. And you know what the producer is doing the whole entire step of the way. Sometimes we watch these shows just to see the producer's handiwork. And yet, you are so sucked into the drama, you're lured in anyway. You know the formula, but, but it's enticing. And sin is the exact same way. Friends, we know the formula. And if you know the formula, you can be released from its grips. You can say no. And here, here's the, well, we'll get to the formula in a moment, but I want to point this out first, is that um, the way sin animates our bodies as weapons is by planting a desire within us, a desire. The ESV calls it a passion. Uh, the same word is, is used all throughout the New Testament to describe desires. It is a neutral word. Your, friends, I want you to hear this so clearly. Your desires are not necessarily evil. Paul uses the same exact word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, My desire is that I would depart and go be with Christ, which is greater by far. But almost 75% of the time of this word is used in the New Testament, and that's a guesstimation on my part. Uh, so many more times than not, this word is used with a negative connotation. It is, it is used, it is loaded with self-indulgence and self-centeredness. The best way to see this playbook of sin is found in James chapter 1. James says this, and our ladies who went through this in our Thursday, women's, women of the word, they'll re- remember these verses. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by their own what? Desires. And that desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully born, brings forth death. What a grotesque picture. But sin distorts our desires. It reminds me of that moment when Cain is spoken to by the Lord, and and, and the Lord says to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and, and, and it desires to rule over you, but you must kill it. We remember that moment out in the field where Cain speaks to his brother, and then his desire overcomes him. He had not killed sin in his life, and therefore sin killed him. And you and I don't need to be Cain and Abel to know the sequence of events, because before you were a Christian, you didn't fight your desires, did you? No. You were ruled by whichever your heart told you to go. Like, you were tuned into Oprah. You were like, Whoever I am, whatever I want to be, that's who I'm going to be. I want to be me. This is the real me. I go where my heart leads. Today, whatever you desire is the most important thing in your life. You can argue with people's actions, but you can't argue with their desires. And it's an absurd thing in the world to even question your desires. But think about this. Christ comes into the heart of someone who is enslaved to sin and redeems them and sets them on a new trajectory where God's grace no longer allows them to be slaves to sin but calls them a child of God. And all of a sudden, where we used to not battle, we find ourselves locked in a conscious struggle with sin. I've had this conversation a couple times here in this campus where um, people come to faith in Jesus Christ and it changes them radically. 
I remember a couple times I've talked to a few, a few of you, and um, I'd say, hey, it's, it's so good to see you at church. How's it going? I'm so excited for you. And on more than one occasion, someone has come up to me and said, you know, it's really hard. I didn't realize how much of an addiction I had to cigarettes until I became a Christian. And now, I'm fighting to quit. What changed? It wasn't some warning on the label. That's always been there. It was a deep change in your heart that made the sin a struggle. And friends, don't reject the struggle. Reject the sin in the struggle. That struggle is proof that you are walking according to the Spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. I think the most dangerous place we can be as a Christian is to assume that sin has no interest in claiming you back from God. The most dangerous place you can be is to assume that sin has no interest in claiming you back from God. No, the enemy is playing with our desires, trying to mislead us and trying to deceive us and trying to trick us. And, and here's what desires are like. Desires are like double agents. They are not to be trusted. Our desires act like they're in our best interest when secretly they've been co-opted by the enemy and used against us. And in a war, do you know what governments do when an agent has been found to flip to become a double agent? Do you know what governments today do to those types of intelligence officers? They kill them. So here's the good news. Because you're dead to sin and alive to God, your desires can be destroyed. Your desires can be denied. And how do we do this? Paul says, don't present your members, your, the parts of your body, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. My grandfather, in commenting on this passage, he was a pastor. I read his books whenever I study for sermons. Sometimes I disagree with him. I call him on the phone. And I say, Grandpa, what were you thinking? And then I got to do this. And I go, okay, you're right, Grandpa, you're right. I didn't have to do this this week because he made a brilliant observation in the life of David the king. He said that if you think about David's sin with Bathsheba, it was a sin that was enacted with his entire body. David's eyes looked upon his neighbor's wife. His mind plotted the wicked scheme. His hand signed a cowardly order for the woman's husband to be killed. Read Psalm 51 this week. I want you to note the ways that David describes how his whole body was affected by sin. It's no wonder at the end of it he says, God, Thoroughly wash me from my guilt and my iniquity. Friends, don't trust your double agent desires. Let's get incredibly practical here for a moment. Um, what, in, what in your life is a desire that has been co-opted by the enemy? You're like, well, I don't know. How do I know that? If it's a double agent, how do I know that? I feel like they're working in my best interest, but I don't know that. I don't know that. Well, there's a very simple test. You can ask yourself, and spouses, this is really good to... Um, to, to initiate conversation with your spouse, whenever something comes up, a desire is surfaced in their heart, you just ask them, like, what if you never got that? How would your life be? Let's just throw a hypothetical situation out there. I know this would never happen to anyone here, but, but guys, what if you never got that truck? You'd be like, well, why am I working? What am I, well, what's the point? 
Like, I want that truck. I'm going to have that truck. I'm going to get that truck. If I have to give up my fourth kid for that truck, I want that truck. And um, I ask myself this sometimes, like, uh, can, you, can you live without cable news? Can, can you live without social media? Can you live without the fine things in life? Can, can you live without Facebook? Can you live without Netflix? Can you live without coffee? I've literally said to my wife, I would rather not breathe than miss my morning cup of coffee. And I am sick right now with a sore throat, and all I wanted was coffee. So, ridiculous. But is it? See, unrighteous desires are the things that you are enslaved by that don't point you back to the things of God. And God gave us our desires to be put to work in works of righteousness, to have the desire for truth and justice to reign here, to have the desire for us to raise godly families, to have the desire to love our neighbors so much that their souls might not be damned in hell, to, to, to have godly desires where the church is built up and God's kingdom reigns. Those are the desires that we are to go after, not, not the desire to look cool on Facebook. And our desires Reign over us. And Paul says this. Here's what he says. Don't present your members to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. So if you're a sad mom who's dissatisfied every day because you scroll through your Facebook feed and you constantly are seeing other moms at the peak of their day while you're sitting in the most mundane moment of your day, are you presenting yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness or as unrighteousness? And if you're a young man who can't stop looking at pornography on your tablet, Paul says, throw the thing away. But it was $800. You fool. So what? Well, I watch Netflix on there. Get a TV and a DVD player a million ways to be entertained in this life that don't lead you into being used for sin. Dads, you don't have to fly off the handle at your kids when you're angry because we know our sinful temper was crucified on Good Friday. We know Jesus died to sin and lives to God, so since desires will not entice me into obeying its passions, I am dead to sin. I'm killing sin. See, sin, here's what sin does. It takes something that's really good and it twists it. Because all these things are actually, at their core, okay. Um, let's take food for a minute. Who thinks food's good? I do. Love food. But have you ever um, read the Proverbs about what they have to say about gluttony? And what is gluttony but a twisting of food, an insatiable appetite that just seems like I need more. 
Let's take sex. I'm not going to make you raise your hands. And sex was invented by God for his glory and our good, and it is good. God created it to be between a husband and a wife for their mutual enjoyment and, and unification to gratify then the desires of your flesh apart from your spouse is to cheapen sex and to uh, abuse it. Let's talk about leisure for a moment. Because you're like, Dan, it's Sunday. If you take away my Sunday nap, I'll be angry. I'll be hangry, too, because I'm not eating food, apparently. Now, eat the food. Don't go crazy. Leisure is one-seventh of God's work week. He doesn't have anything against it. But God also designed young men to be exhausted by the amount of work they did that day, to lay their head on their pillow at night, just begging for sleep for how much they've worked to provide and to protect their family. And um, God is not against fine things either. In fact, you remember in the Old Testament when God was playing, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines with his fixer-upper temple? Do you remember that moment? God didn't say, hey, you know, I'm really stingy on the, the, the things that I want in my temple because I'm a Baptist. That's a cheap shot at Baptist. No, God says, hey, that guy over there, that craftsman, he's the best in the world. I want him to build my place. And I don't want silver, Pfft. gold. Make it out of the finest materials. See, see, sin takes the good that we have from God and it warps it. And it whispers to us that you need more of it. That this thing in itself is going to satisfy you. When actually the thing itself is supposed to create in you a desire for more of God. When you eat steak, I've been on a vegetarian diet a lot lately just for my heart, but when I eat steak, I've noticed that I am closer to God. <laughs> I'm not I'm really, I'm, I mean this sincerely. To appreciate, to appreciate the fine things of life, it, it ought not, re, not terminate on, on the thing itself. I'm not worshiping the filet. Worshiping the one who made the goodness and the juiciness of what happens when butter is put in the pan and the sear and the rose and all the, mm. okay, thank you. You get the point. Whatever you need for life, God has given you, including the ability to say no to your desires. So what is it? What is it? Ask yourself, can I live without this? If not, you may have a, a double agent desire in your life. And moving on to the second half of this message, which will be very short. I'm so grateful for the verse 13 that it's not just that we are to not do these things, to just say no to sin. But check this out. Paul doesn't just say no. He says, do these things instead. In their place, here's how you ought to live. He says, present yourself positively to God. Bring yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Daniel, I need your help on this. Can you come on up here? I, we didn't practice this. This is different. He's going to hate me for it. We're going to evaluate the service later. And he's going to say, you should never do that again. But Dan, I'm going with the microphone right now, so come on up. We sang that song. Um, I am blessed. Uh, you need a guitar, maybe. I don't know. Do you play any other instruments? No, play that. We don't want to hear you on keys. Stick to your lane, man. So, so here's what it means. Here's what it means to present yourselves to God. Check this out. As those who have been brought from death to life. As those who have been brought from death to life. 
In the Greek, none of those words exist. In the English, we don't know how to translate it. It literally reads, present yourself to God, the living dead. Present yourselves to God, alive, but only alive because you've died. Present yourself to God as those who at one time were formerly without a pulse, but now by some miracle you were breathing the air and feeling the blood circulate through your veins on account of God's goodness. What is this? Is it, if, if Christ is truly my life and I am truly dead to sin, then it means this, that my reality is resurrection. My reality is that I am someone who's alive, though I was dead. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So here's what I need you to do, Daniel. I need, I need, we sang this already. I'd love for us to sing it again, to, to sing this, this, this verse. When we, when we do this, we're not saying, you know, I'm the most blessed person in the world. I'm the most called person in the world. I'm the most healed person. I'm not the most healed. But this is how we present ourselves to God. It's saying, in your resurrection power, God, here I am. You call me blessed. You call me called. You call me healed. You call me hold. Can you just sing that over us, Daniel? Just, and may you join in. This is what you look like. To present cold, yourself as if you were dead, but now you're alive. I am Satan. Jesus. Whenever we come together to sing, this is what we're doing. We're declaring our resurrected reality to the Lord. Saying, God, I used to be dead. But this is what you've done in me. I couldn't do it, but you did it for me. I am blessed, I am cold, I am healed, I am whole, I am saved in Jesus' name. Highly favored, anointed, filled with your power for the glory. Jesus' name. That's what it means. To present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life is to say to God, in your resurrection power, I am dead to sin, I am alive to God, and so here's the truth that you claim over me. To rehearse the gospel to ourselves in worship, to come to him and present our offerings, our bodies as living offerings. That's Romans 12, we'll get there. But to know that you fight sin the moment you come into this worship center. And you offer yourself in your resurrected power of Christ to say, God, I was dead. And today I celebrate the life you gave to me. And I think that resurrection reality changes two more things in us. First, it, it means then that my, my motivation for living life is now forgiveness, not fear. The way that I live out my life is not one of fear, but of forgiveness. It's practicing the gospel. This is what... Paul says, he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law. The law brought about fear. The fear that if I don't, then God won't. The fear that if I do, and then I am not. And what the law did was to label each and every one of us by our actions. In the law, those commandments that God gave to us are perfect and pure and holy and good. 
But in the law, our chief motivation is not love, but fear. And sin does the same thing to us. It enslaves us back to that law, going back to the thou shalt not. And God, in Christ, has satisfied so much of the work that needed to be done on our behalf to fulfill the law on our account. And this is why union with Christ is such a big deal. This is why justification by faith is such a big deal. This is why Paul spent five chapters explaining to us salvation before he ever got to the moment to say, hey, use this salvation as a weapon for righteousness, not a weapon for unrighteousness. It's because we had to realize that nothing in us can do this. And when we walk around life trying to do our own good works, trying to be our own saviors, we're operating out of fear as opposed to the motivation of forgiveness. How many families can't forgive because they're afraid of what people would say? The gospel paradoxically frees us to forgive because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. The only way to kill sin is then to already be dead to sin. The only way to live out forgiveness is to already be forgiven. The only way to put to death fear is to have fear be put to death for you. Friends, we have that perfect love. We have that love of the Father who sent Christ on our behalf to justify us, to declare us innocent before his sight. And he perfectly demonstrated that love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he set us free from fear. That's the meaning behind what John says, that perfect love casts out fear. Is that we could stand before a holy God and know, God, I'm not right. Which is why my faith is in that one, the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who died for me and loved me. And I'm motivated to do good things for you because of your forgiveness. Finally and lastly, which is redundant, but I'm getting to the point. My authority is grace, not guilt. Since you are dead to sin and alive to God, the final authority, the final position that you have in this world is not one of guilt. It's one of God's grace. It's one where he calls out over you what you actually are. If, if, if the law labels us as sinners, God's grace calls us his children. If God's law tells us what we have and have not done, God's grace says it doesn't matter what you have or have not done. It matters what I've done. And friends, don't allow the enemy to entice you with a lie that you ought to be better than you are or that you're never going to make it. Don't let the enemy throw the law on your face with its guilt and its shame for your failures. Because God's grace means we are not what the law says we are. God's grace means we are not what sin says we are. God's grace means that though we are in a battle, we are still called by his name. We are still adopted as his children. We are still heirs of the kingdom. We are still participants in his resurrection. And we are still commissioned for his purpose. God's grace means that guilt no longer holds us captive. But we're set free. 
And most dearly to my heart, being under grace, not law, means that I no longer have to strive on my own morality to try and prove my salvation to anyone, including myself. God's grace, which reigns over my life, superabounding grace, tells me who I am. It reminds me that God is for me and not against me. God's grace reigns over us saying, you can't do it, so I did it. I killed sin for you so that you could have the power to deny sin and you're not condemned. You're loved. So, while our enemy would seek to have us believe that your thoughts can't be changed and your desires can't be denied, that your reality is actually death and your motivation is your fear and your position is guilt, here's some good news. Because of our union with Christ. Because I'm alive to God and dead to sin, my thoughts can be transformed. My desires can be denied. My reality is resurrection. And my motivation is forgiveness. And my position, my authority is God's glorious, illustrious, majestic, magnanimous grace. Grace. 